Use code JACK250, all caps, to get $250 off for tickets to the Digital Asset Summit in New York, September 13th and September 14th. It is the premier institutional-focused crypto conference. It's a must-go for traditional finance institutions as well as crypto firms. I will be hosting a macro chat, uh, a panel where I'll be interviewing Daniel DiMartino Booth, Urian Timmer, Mike Green, and Alfonso Pecatiello. Use code JACK250 to get $250 off. I'll be walking around the city with the sign so you don't forget the code. Thanks. I am joined by Jacob Shapiro, partner and director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Jacob, welcome back to Forward Guidance. Jack, it's so good to be back with you. Uh, we haven't talked for a couple months because, uh, well, the Russia-Ukraine war didn't go away. It's just people had more important <laughs> things to talk about, I guess. <laughs> no, Jacob, you were exactly right in that the hostilities between Russia and Ukraine, they don't go away. It's just they, they uh, people talk, talk about them less. But people in the news, people in the media, they often seek a resolution. They say, well, what's next? How's it going to end? It's like often it, it doesn't end. Uh, but we are not talking about an ending today. We're talking about the beginning of something. Well, the beginning of, of something taken to its new stage, and that is uh, the conflict between China and t- Taiwan, which has been a, a bit of relationship for a while. Uh, but it, uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, Nancy Pelosi of the, the United States, she recently fanned the flames by flying to Taiwan, which China did not take, uh, China did not react well. They said that that visit violated their sovereignty. And now as we speak, Jacob, uh, uh, China is conducting uh, uh, military operations dangerously close to the shores of Taiwan. I believe 12 miles off the coastline, they're firing live missiles in there. So Jacob, how serious is this? Why did you know, I have so many questions? How serious is this? Why did Speaker Pelosi go to Taiwan in the first place? Did she accomplish what she wanted to accomplish? Was she aware that this would uh, stoke the tensions? Is 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 that serving some greater political ambition that you know I'm not aware of? And then, how severe do you think this conflict between China and Taiwan is currently? And how severe do you think it could get? You know, if it, if it mushrooms out. <laughs> All right. Well, a lot of questions off the bat. Let me try and and hit one, and then you'll you'll prompt me if I miss some of the others. Um, I think you're, you were right in that it is the beginning of something new. This is the beginning of the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. Uh, and the first thing your listeners and, and audience members should uh, hear in that is that there have been three previous ones and the world didn't stop and there was world, no World War III. Uh, the previous one, the third Taiwan Strait crisis, happened in 1995 to 1996. And I think it's worthwhile to just take 60, 120 seconds max and explain what happened then. So in 1994... Uh, the then Taiwan, Taiwanese president wanted to visit the United States. The Bill Clinton White House said, absolutely not. You don't get a visa. They made him sit on a, in a, on a military airplane in Honolulu uh, rather than actually enter U.S. soil because they didn't want to piss off the Chinese. Congress didn't like that. And when that Taiwanese president got invited to speak at Cornell University, my alma mater, Go Big Red, in 1995, Congress passed by some ridiculous margin, I think it was like 97 to 1 or something, a resolution that said, we want the White House to give this guy a visa. And so the White House was sort of shamed into giving the Taiwanese president a visa. He came to Cornell and the Chinese started a bunch of military exercises and testing missiles and dangerously close and tensions rising, all these other sorts of things. Um, It happened over a period of months and crescendoed with a particularly aggressive uh, round of military exercises. If you look back at U.S. newspapers at the time, there was even talk of, is there going to be a nuclear exchange or nuclear weapons going to be involved? I mean, things got really dire. And then both sides sort of walked away from the table. One of the reasons China de-escalated in that situation was because their moves were self-defeating. So they actually increased support for independent sentiment on Taiwan by being so tough about it. And that Taiwanese president saw a big boost in the polls in elections that happened around that time. And so China de-escalated and decided to let it go. A couple, well, I think a year later, the Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, goes and visits Taiwan. So that's all happened in the late 90s at the apex of globalization, height of, you know, so the American unipolar moment under, under the Clinton White House. So fast forward to today, it's a very different world. China is a much stronger country, a much wealthier country, but the same fundamentals really haven't changed that much. So is it a big deal? Yes, 
it's a big deal. Um, I wouldn't measure this crisis in terms of days. If we look at the previous Taiwan Strait crisis, we're going to be talking about this for months probably. And there will probably be periods where maritime traffic and air traffic in the South China Sea gets disrupted. Uh, and in terms of trade in that region, in terms of global supply change, in terms of investor sentiment, it's going to affect and hit all of those things until there is some kind of de-escalation or some type of return to a new normal or even to the status quo currently. But I think we'll get there. Um, the last thing I'll say is that it's important from the perspective of U.S.-China relations because we're just running out of opportunities. When I say we, I mean the world here. Both sides are running out of opportunities to improve the relationship at a bilateral level. One of the things that nobody's talking about right now is that just a couple weeks ago, well, I guess it was early July, so we can say a month ago, the Biden White House was leaking that they wanted to reduce temporarily some of the Trump-era tariffs on China. Um, there's a lot of reasons to do that. First and foremost, if you want to get rid of inflation, getting China, uh, removing some of the friction there in U.S.-China trade, that's your best surefire way as the White House to reduce inflation. Forget about the Fed and forget about releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. If you really want to bring down inflation, announce some kind of temporary trade deal with China, and suddenly we're hitting the supply side of the inflation problem, which is where I think most of the problems are. That's all gone. And I do think that when you're looking at China right now, at every single step, they think the U.S. is encroaching on them. Uh, they think the U.S. is not taking them seriously. And the U.S., I mean, just look at some of Pelosi's comments. It's autocracy versus democracy. It's good versus evil. The United States must stand for its commitments to Taiwan. I still don't know what the U.S. commitment is to Taiwan. We gave up recognition of them in 1979. It seems like we have seller's remorse or something like that. We seem to forget. I also would point out, um, you know, the same day that Speaker Pelosi was there and was talking about democracy and autocracy, we announced that we're going to sell $3 billion worth of Patriot missiles to Saudi Arabia, that beacon of democracy in the middle of the <laughs> Middle East. So um, <laughs> I'm rambling now a little bit, but is it serious? Yes. Is it World War III? No. Does it inch us a little bit further along the path to an eventual military conflict with China one day in the future? Yes. And I find that depressing. Yes. And that's a great parallel you draw between the last China-Taiwan uh, Strait crisis of 1996. I was looking at a chart re uh, recently of just just of a map, and uh, there's the, the Taiwan Strait, which is very very large, and then there's uh, you know how how far they go within those. And is it accurate to say that they are doing they're uh, going farther in? to the Taiwanese coastline uh, cl closer than they were in 1996, or is that not accurate? I'm not a tactical expert, so I don't know if it's technically a little bit closer. I've seen those maps too. The thing that jumps out to me is that if you look at the, the exercises that happened the first time around, it's not a 360 encirclement of, of Taiwan. It's sort of, they, they get almost all the way there, but they don't go 360. The exercises they've, that they've announced now are, are full encirclement. Um, so that shows you a little bit about development in the Chinese Navy and the Chinese Air Force over the course of the past couple of decades, they now are practicing encircling the whole island rather than maybe a frontal assault on the island and trying to do things that way. So that for me is the most interesting thing in the exercises themselves. But another thing that happened at the height of the third Taiwan Strait crisis was the U.S. sent two carrier battle groups through the Taiwan Strait just to let China know how serious U.S. resolve was. And this is the I mean, this is the thing that China doesn't want anyone to know and that nobody talks about. Even though China's military capabilities have improved, they're not going to win a fight with the U.S. Navy right now. They know that. They're not going to pick a fight with the U.S. Navy until they think they can win it. Um, so, again, that's one of the reasons why I don't think it's going to escalate to that sort of situation because I don't, I don't expect um, – China to pick a fight until it thinks it can win one. And I don't think they want to pick a fight in general. It will, though, be very interesting to watch how this evolves and what things they decide to test in order to intimidate Taiwan, because this is a great moment for China to sort of show off, hey, here are all the things that we've done sort of in the last two decades since we did this before. Here's how our capabilities have increased. Um, here are all the things that we want you to know we can do in the hopes of deterring things like this from happening again. And why do you? Th so it's interesting that it was Speaker Gingrich uh, in 1996 who went to Taiwan. Now, of course, it is Speaker Pelosi. So the exact same role. What was it that Newt Gingrich wanted to accomplish back in the day, and what was it that uh, Speaker Pelosi wanted to accomplish? And do you think that she is, you know, now is she satisfied with what she accomplished? Did she get what she wanted, or were there some consequences that she thought the Chinese wouldn't do? How are you thinking about this? Yeah. So. They were different 
scenarios in the sense that um, you know this was the the second Clinton term, so he didn't have Congress. He was dealing with a hostile Republican Congress. So um, the Republicans were looking for anything they could to chip away at Clinton and make life difficult for him. Um, and this was a great way to do it. He had denied the visa to the Taiwanese president, so the Republicans wanted to basically make an example of Clinton and say, no, we really care about this and we want to make you look bad. And I think that was all part of it. Um, Pelosi, I, I have trouble putting myself in her shoes um, because she's the same party as Biden. And one of the most confusing things about this to me was, I mean, Joe Biden came out a couple weeks ago when all of this, when the rumors of Pelosi's visit started. And he said, well, the Department of Defense is against this visit um, and, you know, just sort of left it at that. Um, if Biden didn't want Pelosi there and it was going to hurt his uh, whatever priorities he had with China, I don't know why he didn't just take her aside and say, hey, like we're in the same party. I'm the president. How about like we're on, like this is not a divided Congress type situation. Why don't you not do this right now? Do you think he did and she didn't listen or? Uh, I don't know. I mean, we're you, you'd have to know what was going on behind the scenes there. And I, I try to stick to geopolitics. My, my point is just that China will absolutely think that Biden had an opportunity to do that. China understands that the Speaker of the House is not the president and that um, the U.S., that the White House does not have perfect control over everything, but they're in the same party. Like Biden should have some pull over Pelosi. Um, I don't want to be too cynical, but I mean, I imagine that Pelosi had personal political objectives that she wanted to achieve by visiting Taiwan. Two days ago when um, I was watching um, an interview on Bloomberg, Somebody on Bloomberg asked uh, a question to two separate guests, and they said, what does the U.S. get out of this? And both of the guests didn't have an answer. And I was glad I was not there because I, I wouldn't have had an answer either. I don't know what the U.S. gets out of this, and I don't know what strategic imperative or strategic objective Pelosi or her office thinks that she's furthering by making this visit. Um, if you look, and I, I think I also want to say the one actor in all of this who does not get talked about at all is Taiwan. Like, what does Taiwan want? And if you look at the polls in Taiwan, we don't have polls about whether they wanted Pelosi to visit or not. That's a hard question to poll for. But if you look at how the Taiwanese think about their geopolitical situation, the vast majority of them don't want to rejoin China, and the vast majority of them do not want independence. The vast majority of them want the status quo. They want to be left alone. They want to make the semiconductors for the rest of the world. They want to do their own thing. Um, and so... I mean, the, the Taiwanese government was very friendly towards Pelosi. I'm sure that particular government is happy to have her there. But from Taiwan's perspective, they're now getting caught between these two great powers and being used really as, as, a, as a chess piece in the domestic politics of both of those powers. So it kind of sucks for Taiwan when you back out and, and look at it from that perspective as well. And I don't, you know, as for Pelosi's intentions, that, that was the question you led with. I don't know. She doesn't make yeah. a lot of sense to me. Yes. And so... so what is the current relationship between China and Taiwan? I, I will briefly go back a little bit so, so you don't have to go you know, back in the day in the 1920s in China. There were a lot of warlords and there was sort of a national movement that to, to fight those warlords and that eventually splintered into the right wing nationalists led by Chiang Kai-shek and the left wing uh, uh, communists led by Mao Zedong. Um, and Ultimately, Mao Zedong uh, won, the communists won, and the nationalists settled on the, the uh, area of Taiwan. So that history that I just sped past through that I'm sure has many inaccuracies and simplifications in it, where does that lead us? The 1940s, 1950s, and then when, when did China sort of re-exert its control over Taiwan, and how would you characterize the current relationship that, that's manifested since then? Yeah, so I'll add two things. The first thing is I'll, I'll back up a little bit and say that for most of Chinese history, and China has a lot of history, we're dealing with probably the oldest civilization in the world. Uh, Taiwan was not part of, of, of the Chinese empire. Um, it was the Portuguese who settled Taiwan uh, back in the 17th century as sort of a trading post when they wanted to get to China. Um, and over a period of hundreds of years, Taiwan was this place where either Western traders were there because they wanted to sell into the Chinese market, or you had rebels or warlords in China who went to Taiwan as a base of operations to attack the mainland. I say that to say that you know China has a history of thinking of Taiwan as this kind of separate place that gets used against them. And that's when successive Chinese governments and leaders start thinking about, well, how do I rectify the situation? How do I make Taiwan part of what's going on? Um, you were exactly right about what happened in the Chinese Civil War and how Chiang Kai-shek eventually ends up in Taiwan, which he called the Republic of China at the time, and which the United States at the time, because it had supported Chiang Kai-shek, um, recognized as the legitimate government of China. 
Um, so for from basically what until from 1948, 1950 ish, when the Chinese Civil War ends until um, 1979, the U.S. recognizes the Republic of China, a.k.a. Taiwan, as the legitimate Chinese government. And um, the, the People's Republic of China, the communist mainland, the U.S. doesn't really have a relationship with. Um, it takes Richard Nixon, who was foaming at the mouth about anti-communism and anti-China and all this other stuff in the 50s and 60s, who he becomes president and he sees a multipolar world emerging. And he thinks, you know what, I'm not sure we can take on the Soviet Union by ourselves. I think I need to make a deal with China. And so there's ping pong diplomacy and a bunch of great stories that we could talk about. And you can go ring, uh, read Henry Kissinger's books. I hate that I just plugged Henry Kissinger because I don't like him. But he's got some really interesting insights because he was in the room where it happened for a lot of this stuff. Um, and so Nixon sort of starts this ball rolling. And by 1979, Congress and, a, and the Jimmy Carter White House uh, passed the Taiwan Relations Act, where basically the United States starts recognizing the People's Republic of China. It de-recognizes the Republic of China, but it keeps to this one China principle, which is this idea that there is only one China, and, and that's sort of the U.S. policy. The, what is left unsaid there is, well, Taiwan thinks it's the one China and China thinks it's the one China. So we're not going to weigh in. We're just going to say we think there is one China and we don't want anyone changing the status quo by force. And that is the U.S. policy today. And that is what um, China wants the U.S. policy to be going forward. The problem here with what what's with what's happening and what it, it happened in 95, 96 and it's happening now. And you saw this with what Xi Jinping said in his warnings last week Um China wants the U.S. to live up to that commitment, uh, both in deed and in action. Uh, I'm sorry, in, in words and in action. So the United States and the White House keep saying nothing has changed. We still have a one China policy. Pelosi's visit doesn't mean anything. Nothing has changed from a strategic basis. And China is saying, how dumb do you think we are? Like, yes, we know that technically nothing has changed, but Nancy Pelosi is going to visit. There were rumors or reports a, a couple, maybe a year or two ago that U.S. troops were helping to train Taiwanese soldiers. Like, how, like this is not, you know, you're saying one thing and you're, and you're doing another thing. And that's not me supporting the Chinese position. I'm just trying to get you in the heads of how Beijing is seeing it. They see that the U.S. is basically saying one thing and doing another. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're in this sort of friction point because, um, and it goes back to your question about the history here. The history is based on this deal between Beijing and Washington where they team up in a strategic sort of pragmatic relationship to go against the Soviet Union. Obviously, that's not the world we're in. So in some ways, the current China, Taiwan, U.S. love tri triangle, it wasn't created for this geopolitical environment. We're in a, a situation of inertia and it's an old solution onto an old problem. And there's a reason that's one of the reasons you're getting this friction. None of the relations there actually make sense when you look at the actual geopolitical interests of all sides. What is China's grand ambition? Does it want to fully integrate Taiwan? Is You said Taiwan, Taiwanese citizens are very happy with the status quo. They don't want independence, but they don't want to join China. But the Chinese, the Chinese communists, they want Taiwan to be fully integrated, right? Yes. China wants Taiwan to be a part of the mainland, considers it a part of the mainland, considers Taiwan's um, autonomy, independence, whatever word you want to throw in there that is diplomatically correct. Um, as, as a challenge to the Chinese Communist Party, as a challenge to the coherence of the Chinese government, all of those sorts of things. The, the metaphor here really is Hong Kong. It's a very similar sort of situation. Eventually, China wants and expects that Taiwan will rejoin the mainland. And by what means does China plan on uh, affecting that reintegration or integration? Is it going to be a military takeover? Do they have sort of agents there? Are they, you know investing very heavily into Taiwanese schools so that the sort of educated elite in Taiwan become very friendly with the Communist Chinese Party, all of the above? Like, how are they sort of planning on going about it? That's the 10 trillion yuan question. Um, <laughs> I'll start with a disclaimer, which is that um, you and I talked right before the Russia-Ukraine war, and I said that I didn't think Russia was going to invade Ukraine because I didn't think that they could win the conflict. And I thought that decision makers in Moscow knew that and that, that was going to deter them from actually moving forward. I ended up being wrong about that. I did not do a good job of putting myself in the in the mind of Putin and the other just strategic decision makers in Russia. They thought that they could win. And that was part of the reason that they moved forward. So I, I made that mistake with Russia-Ukraine. So you were... You're uh, analysis that Russia could not 
quickly win the war in Ukraine was correct, but you just you all you made the assumption that the Russian leadership also believed that, and yes. they did not. And in the end, that meant I was wrong because it's nice. You know, sure, I'm technically correct, but you know whether it was investment positions and Russian equities that we got out of, thankfully, because we saw the writing on the wall before other people. I mean, it, it like I didn't get any of the things right that I wanted to get right, but yes, like on that particular thing that Russia wasn't going to have an easy time of it, I got that right. I bring that up to say though, um, I don't want to. I don't want that to necessarily um, uh, color my analysis of China in Taiwan because I don't want to say, oh, well, I made this mistake, so now I'm going to do the opposite. But then I also don't want to make the same mistake here because I don't think China. What do you mean? What do you mean? I don't. I don't think China can take over Taiwan right now. If you look at um, what we know about the Chinese Navy and the Chinese military, they only started building amphibious landing craft, like new ones, in the last couple of years. They've only just started training their pilots for operations on their brand new aircraft carriers that they're still figuring out how to work in sort of the last decade or so. An amphibious assault on an island like Taiwan, that's like the PhD times two of of military conflicts. Like that's not going to be easy. And I just don't think they have the capability to do that. So I could be wrong in the same way I was about Russia, Ukraine. It could be that China does think that and does think that it has to do something in that regard. But I don't think so. I think China's grand strategy is going to look very similar to what happened with Hong Kong. Um, They want to eventually reincorporate Taiwan into China and they want to make it a political and an economic fate accompli. So what are some of the ways that they do that? Um, Forgive the terrible pun. They want to chip away at Taiwan's semiconductor dominance. Um, And that's not only does China want to build domestic champions who can make semiconductors. uh, They've also been they also try and pilfer TSMC's best engineers. Um, They offer them tons of money to come to the mainland and work in the mainland to bring some of their technological know-how. The Taiwanese and Chinese economies are inextricably linked. Uh, One of the reasons Taiwan has been so successful in the last couple of decades is because it is this in-between realm between China and the rest of the world. So in in a globalized world where there's free trade and there's not geopolitical friction, Taiwan gets to reap the best of all worlds. It gets to be in bed with Silicon Valley and have access to U.S. tech, but it's also deeply embedded in the Chinese market. It has the language and the cultural knowledge to really um, take advantage of all of those sorts of things. That all sort of goes out the door if you have this big geopolitical conflict that is brewing. So China has succeeded in large part in making Taiwan's economy tied to the mainland. Politically, it's actually gone in the opposite direction. Um, the the support for China in Taiwan has has declined considerably, and that's one thing maybe that would move China to make a move that they don't want to. But my general analysis here is that China is thinking long term. It wants to integrate Taiwan eventually. It will wait until um, un, until it's very clear that it can do so. It will. It wants to do that peacefully, and all of it. It, it is developing its military capabilities right now for two reasons. Number one. If it doesn't work peacefully, they want to be able to do it themselves. And then also the military capabilities for deterrence. It's supposed to deter things exactly like this Pelosi visit. And so far, that's not exactly working. But that's what I think what China wants in the long term. The question is, are they willing to be patient? Um, Are they willing to sort of live up to this Chinese stereotype that their strategy operates in terms of decades rather than presidential election cycles in the United States and that they will stick around for 50 years until nobody cares enough for Taiwan that they just march in? That's what they did with Hong Kong. Um, The reason Hong Kong belongs to China now is because they waited until Hong Kong was so dependent on the Chinese economy that when Margaret Thatcher came and said, we'd like to renew Britain's lease on Hong Kong, Deng Xiaoping, who was the leader of China at the time, said, uh, no, thank you. We'd like to take it back. And if you want to keep it, that's cool. We're just going to turn off all the water and all the utilities and we'll blockade it and good luck governing your territory. It, I think that's the type of model that China's moving towards and that the military stuff is that sort of, they don't want to break that glass and pull that lever. That would be a failure, I think, of Chinese strategy. Yes. T- you said uh, TSMC. That is a, a Taiwan. Uh, excuse me. That is a, a Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company. I think the largest uh, semi semiconductor uh, uh, company in the world. And I know that the U.S. Congress recently passed the Chips Act, which provides uh, fifty billion, fifty-two billion dollars of support for chip companies that invest in the U.S. And it includes restrictions on investments in China for companies that receive U.S. subsidies. So 
tell us why is there a heightened interest in chips? Uh, why is the, the U.S. wanting to you know, get, get much more involved in the chip making process is, are, is it the fact that, um, you know, have they been the sort of the weak link in the supply chain, uh, over the past two years? Is it, are they causing inflation? Yeah. So let's step back for a bit and, and remember like where semiconductors and chips come from, because the U S started, basically started this industry. Um, and it started this industry in the 1950s. And the reason it happened was because, um, the Soviets launched Sputnik into the atmosphere and the United States freaked out and thought that the Soviets were going to overtake the U.S. in terms of tech and space and all these other things. So basically, um, the U.S. figures out that microchips can help make missiles more accurate and it can help make your your fighter jets. Um, it can give you more accurate information about where to actually fire things and make your weapons uh, more precise. So for a long time, for like 20 to 25 years, um, not only is the U.S. the leader in semiconductor manufacturing globally, uh, it's also the U.S. government is the main purchaser. I love this irony that at the height of the Cold War between the evil communists and the great capitalists, it's basically the United States government that funds an entire domestic industry with its own purchases. And it's the reason we have computers and iPhones and all these things that require chips today. Um, the U.S. lost its advantage here in the 70s, 80s, and really in the 90s because of free trade, because free trade do, did what it was supposed to do. The laws of comparative advantage and things like that say that in a, in a world where we're dealing with globalization and the Soviet Union collapses and everybody wants free trade and China wants to join the World Trade Organization, Taiwan got really, really good at fabricating chips and they could do it better than anybody else and they could do it more cheaply than anybody else because they literally invested most of their economy on doing this. They became the best at this in the world. Um, the U.S. is still a leader in a lot of parts of semiconductor technology. In terms of design, software, the U.S. is still where you want to be. But Taiwan is where these chips are actually made. Um, ASML, which is the Dutch company, they create the EUV lithography equipment. They have a monopoly on that because it's just about how you etch patterns and things into the actual chips themselves. So it's not just Taiwan. This is a very specialized supply chain where you've had different companies in different countries go all in on different components of it because it's so important to the global economy and they were working within a free trade system. Um, the reason that the United States is worried about this and is passing things like the CHIP Act is because most U.S. chips are not made in the U.S. anymore. They are made in Taiwan. So if you're talking about companies like AMD, NVIDIA, they design them. They have the best design. They then send them to Taiwan and Taiwan makes them. TSMC makes them. Um, Intel is the only U.S. company that still makes chips. And because of a lot of different um, mistakes or inefficiencies yes. on their part, they've actually fallen behind. They're no longer at the cutting edge with TSMC and Samsung is also up there. They're more in memory chips, but we won't go kind of down that rabbit hole. Um, this is a problem, not just for the United States. It's also a problem for China. So, uh, the Chinese company that does this is SMIC, uh, S M I C. If you guys want to look it up, um, China has been supporting them with way more than $50 billion for the last couple of years. China knows it needs to wean itself off of, uh, uh, dependence on Taiwan for making semiconductors. The U.S. knows that it needs to do the same. Um, during the Trump administration, uh, the U.S. was trying to lean on TSMC to come build cutting-edge factories in the United States. I believe they had a, a deal in principle for one in Arizona, and maybe there was one in Wisconsin, or that was a previous one. But that's a very difficult thing to ask Taiwan to do, because the moment they actually transfer that technology or they have the factory somewhere else, well, then no one cares about them and the Chinese can just march in and do whatever they want to do. Um, so the U.S. is basically signaling to U.S. companies, hey, we need a we need a domestic um, capacity to actually fabricate semiconductors. So we're going to put our money where our mouth is exactly like we did in the 1950s and the 1960s. And hopefully the, the market will create a U.S. champion who will be able to replace TMS, TSMC in the long run. I think what this means and... Um, is, is that we're going to see probably uh, chips that are inferior, but you're also going to have different companies that are going to sort of have a stranglehold on different markets. So eventually, SMIC will be serving the Chinese market. And maybe they won't have the cutting-edge chips that a TSMC would have had, but they'll do good enough for whatever the Chinese government or Chinese companies want. It'll probably be a similar type thing in the U.S. We're, we're heading towards this... Um, disjuncture, I think, between the within the semiconductor supply chain. And it's going to take years to unravel, um, but that's what's happening. The last thing I would just say, and this is another reason why we're not going to have a World War III uh, in the South China Sea as a result of this. Right now, today, TSMC is still the gold standard. 
and the U.S. and China are both dependent on importing semiconductors from Taiwan. Uh, if you take Taiwan off the table there from that point of view, it would be deadly to both of those economies. So in some ways, as long as TSMC has this central position in global semiconductor supply chains, it's a deterrent to real war breaking out between China and the U.S. Because, I mean, obviously all wars have tremendous economic impact, but you would basically be killing the supply of microchips uh, to most countries in the world. And it's supposed to be industry 4.0. We're supposed to have 5G. Everything is, is based on chips right now. So you're really talking about obliterating the global economy if you're going to do that right now with the way semiconductor supply chains work. Right. A, a key input into inflation has just been the rolling Chinese shutdowns where factories at full capacity one month, the next month, it's totally empty because of its zero COVID policy. And then that causes a shipping buildup, which causes shipping rates to surge, and it sort of rolls down th throughout the daisy chain. What, um, you know, the, the Taiwan, uh, Taiwan Strait is a incredibly uh, busy uh, place for ships to go through. And I was reading that commercial ships were being told, warned not to enter the strait because of the Chinese missile exercises. So how severe of a uh, disturbance to, to global trade is this um, if the military tra uh, uh, training exercises by, by China continue? And then also the Chinese exercises of sending missiles, you know, 10, 12 miles away from the Taiwanese coast, as well as sending five missiles into Japanese waters. The, uh, that is, I, when I read this, it's supposed to end on Sunday. Do you think that that will end on Sunday? Well, the first thing I'll say, I mean, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict has so many overtones, some which are similar and then some which are completely dissonant for, for this conflict right now. Um, this week, we saw that the Ukrainians got their first grain shipment out via the Black Sea as part of that Russia-Ukraine-Turkey grain deal. I bring that up because if a ship can get out of the Black Sea with all of the chaos that's happening in the Russia-Ukraine war, um, and you can get insurers to insure that ship and you know political agreement on all sides to get it out, you could probably get through the South China Sea. Like This is a much less hostile environment than that is right now. Um, that said, um, yes, there are going to be shipping disruptions in the South China Sea. Based on what I've heard from some of the people I'm talking to, it hasn't affected daily operations for companies and things like that. There seems to be enough slack in the system to deal with this for a couple of days. The thing, you've, you've hit it exactly on the nose. What if this goes beyond Sunday? What if this goes into this is weeks now where we're having to deal with these sorts of things. Maybe there's not enough backup supply to appreciate for this, and you're gonna to have to make difficult decisions about whether ships are gonna go in there or not. Uh, like I said, I think that what we're gonna see here is it's not like it's gonna be Sunday and then China's gonna stop and then this crisis is over. I think we're dealing with a period of months of uncertainty and volatility. So probably there will be an ending to the military exercise on Sunday. If I had to bet, I would say there's not gonna be a new round on Monday. I would bet that things quiet down for a week or two, and then maybe you get something that's even more intense for a period. And, and China starts trying to build up, like I said, to create that new normal and set some new expectations and show how upset they are. So the, the, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a high degree of certainty in that. I mean, there's a lot of volatility here. And the other thing I should say is that all it takes is one errant missile or one trigger happy pilot or one mistake to sort of change the con the tenor of the conversation we're having entirely, which is one of the reasons analysts like me hate these types of situations because we can be the most brilliant analysts in the world, and if one idiot you know hits the wrong button on a fighter jet, whoops! Like suddenly, like we're we're in a war, which is why people like me want to avoid these types of situations because you get those contingencies. So that's my best guess, but it's a guess. I mean, I if if they extended the exercises or if they had more intense exercises and we were dealing with shipping disruptions of weeks um that would that would definitely not surprise me and what are options available to the taiwanese leadership uh what are various things they could do that would on the margin make china more angry on the margin appease china a little bit i guess the nuclear option is to say hey let's 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 make this official china or let's join you know but um what what are the various things that they could do the nightmare scenario for geopolitical analysts like me is what if Taiwan tries to declare independence? Uh, because then, formally, uh, because then, then we're in a situation where it doesn't matter what China's capabilities are, they have to do something and they have to do something for real because that's unacceptable to them. Um, I don't think that that's where we're headed. But if, if you saw that sort of signal from Taiwan, um, I would get 
real nervous in a real hurry and I would sort of batten down the hatches. Um, beyond that, I mean, this Taiwanese government uh, doesn't want to placate China in that sense. Um, and they haven't really done anything. I mean, to their they haven't done anything wrong. Like Nancy Pelosi wanted to visit them. They let Nancy Pelosi visit them. So um, they can't they can't tell Nancy Pelosi not to visit. They need the goodwill of the United States because the goodwill of the United States and Japan and some of these other countries in the region is the only real uh, deterrence they have against China waltzing in and taking the island back. Um, so th there's not a whole lot they can do, and it's one of the it's one of the reasons I feel bad for the Taiwanese. I mean, they are trapped in a situation that they don't have a lot of control over. So for this to de-escalate, it's not about what happens in Taipei. It's about what's happening in Washington, what's happening in Beijing, and how are those two sides dealing with each other. And Taiwan is kind of crushed in between. Um, there's a South Korea is a very different example here, but I'm going to use a metaphor from South Korea. South Korea often describes its strategic situation as a shrimp between the whales because it has all these great powers around it. And when the whales crash against each other, the shrimp gets crushed. Uh, think of Taiwan as a like not even a shrimp, like a, a much, much smaller like single cell, like, you know, uh, organism that's going to get crushed when these great powers are rubbing up against each other. They don't have a lot of options. Mm. So moving on to, uh, from Taiwan, just talking about China, the economic data out of China has been absolutely abysmal. Uh, you know, PMIs, manufacturing indices, anyway, you, you know, negative GDP growth, uh, Hong Kong, uh, I believe, uh, negative nominal growth, which is not something you see in the US. Uh, you know, I'm surprised that the sort of recession word is not thrown around more when talking about the Chinese economy, because it, it's, you know, definitely contracting way more in nominal terms than the US. It's not even close or Europe. Um, is, is that a, you know, in, in, in the West, in the U S in Europe, a recession where people are losing their jobs. I actually, you know, haven't looked at the Chinese unemployment rate recently, but typically in, in a recession, you, you know, people lose their jobs. It's an immense, it's something that stimulates politicians to act. We need to pass this relief bill. We need to cut taxes. We need to you know, send out checks in the case of, uh, you know, the 2020 fiscal response, what is the response in China? Is it different in China because it's you know not people aren't elected and uh, sort of the politicians are thinking they have different priorities? I'm glad you asked this, and I mean, in some ways, this is the most important thing happening in the world, and I think it's more important than the Taiwan issue. The Taiwan issue has obscured what's going on in the Chinese economy. Um, at CI, we've been doubling down and trying to figure out what's going on in the Chinese economy because we're investing and managing people's money, and it's the most important puzzle piece in the macro picture. If you get China wrong here, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are and everything else. It's the most important thing happening. And it's the most important thing happening because the last couple of weeks, if it's not just the CPI and the industrial day, I mean, that's the COVID lockdowns explain some of that. It's this real estate crisis um, that has stopped yes. me in my tracks a little bit with China. And I mean, to be transparent, I've been bullish on China for a couple months now. I think I probably still land as a bull, but my view is just kind of under complete and total rev review. I'm building it from the bottoms up. But for your listeners, I mean, most Chinese people own homes, own real estate, and their form of investing for the future is buying real estate. And if housing prices start going down in China over a considered period of time, then you're getting loss of um, confidence in the average Chinese citizen in the Chinese Communist Party. And suddenly we're off to the races. That's what China cannot afford. Now, um, this has happened before. If you go and Google China real estate crisis, you will find breathless articles from 2012, 2014, and 2017, all predicting imminent collapse in the Chinese real estate bubble. So I'm not here to tell you that there's going to be an imminent collapse in the Chinese real estate bubble. I think it's probably too early. Um, I think that China has only just started it's trying to find the right lever to solve the problem. So there's been a lot of fiscal stimulus. They're cutting mortgage rates. But I think we're only just at the beginning. I think the situation is serious enough that if they have to, they will they will back up the dump truck and it will be as much stimulus as they can possibly force down the Chinese, Chinese consumer's throat until things get going again. Um, so I think that's probably where we're at. We're, we're at sort of another moment where China's going to um, find the right amount of stimulus that is going to keep the Chinese economy going. But that's the, the, the China that we're dealing with right now. You're absolutely right to call it. Uh, I mean, China's in recession. Absolutely for sure the economy is contracting. Um, they had set an over 5% GDP growth target. They're not going to get anywhere close to that. Um, 
Xi Jinping has got this big party party congress coming up, so he needs to make some headway on showing that the economy is being well managed and that somebody knows what's happening um, at the top of the economy. And then he gets a Taiwan Strait crisis. I mean, really bad timing from the point of view of China because they need the economy uh, to be going well. So that's all the bad. Um, the good is is really that thing I said about Chinese stimulus. I mean, in previous moments of crisis in the last decade and a half, when China decides to stimulate the economy. They don't do it small. Um, they're going to go all in, and that's there's probably going to be another leg up there. I think maybe you're, if if you're looking at what's happening in China, maybe there's a bottom. Uh, the the question we, we haven't if you look at the data, we're not really seeing that behavior yet. It seems like the stimulus is there, but the Chinese are still they're reticent. They're not sure about the long term. Why should they be sure about the long term? Real estate prices are going down, and there's a Taiwan crisis. Um, but I think that's probably where we land here. And if if you look if you look at the Chinese indices. Um, they've been up since the Taiwan issue started. Like usually you would think, oh, geopolitical conflict, maybe this is going to be bad. Yeah, drop for a little bit, but things are actually um, up since Pelosi visited. So um, we, we should probably spend more time, honestly, talking about the Chinese economy every day. I think it's really the most important thing that's happening in the world because they are still the factory of the world. They are still the ones that consume most of the, world, uh, most of the world's commodities. Um, so if there's going to be major changes in the Chinese economy, we're all going to feel it, even in sectors that think they're not um, tied to it. Yeah, a few things. So I think you could broadly categorize U.S. Uh, cult, you know, economy as a stock culture. When mm -hmm. people want to invest, they have extra money. They buy the S and P 500. Maybe they buy Apple. Maybe they buy Tesla. But they buy stocks. And then also the you know, they buy a house, but like to live in. You know, it's it is an asset, but it's mainly a, a form of shelter. Um, China is definitely a real estate culture, whereas real estate ownership is prioritized over stock ownership, which is uh, much more rare than in the US. So you said that we're early on in the real estate crisis, but let me just like wind the clock back almost a year to when the Evergrande, you know, 10 months maybe, to when the Evergrande crisis really started brewing. And uh, you know, Evergrande, it, it took a while for it to officially default, but it, you know, it unofficially defaulted pretty soon. The bonds were trading at pennies on the dollar. Then another construction company, then another construction company, all their bonds trading at, at 40 cents on the dollar. Interestingly, most of this debt, not dollar-denominated debt, it was yuan-denominated debt. Uh, but it was sort of contained to the financial sector, and it, you, know, you weren't really seeing it. Uh, although that you saw you saw wealth man, uh, wealth management products, people who were uh, bought essentially alternative credit products that were not bank insured, uh, they were protesting. You know, going going to a lobby, some some really protests that you you really don't see in the U.S. Um, but then you started having this mortgage boycott. What was it? Three two months ago, three months ago, oh, yeah. well, and oh, I forgot to say, I actually. So you said most Chinese uh, folks own homes. But I think it's accurate to say they own real estate, yes. but they don't always own homes. Yes. They own the land or the potential land that a home might be built on at a later date. They, you know, it is it is common in the U.S. to buy a property before and, and get the financing before it's built. But in in China, you know, people bought on credit all of these properties that partially because of the the lockdowns are not being built, and you know, it's like. These their properties. There's nothing. The shovel is not in the ground, and and the bank is calling them saying, "Hey, hey, you have to pay up." And they are self. They are willfully defaulting, boycotting, and um, you know, I've, I've read a few of their uh, proclamations, and some of them, by the way, are are are, are uh, boycotting on Evergrande properties. Interestingly enough, but yeah, t t talk to us about these mortgage boycotts. I mean, this seems to me to be a huge deal. It is a huge deal. Um and it's hard to trust any data out of China, um, but I will say, based on the data we have, it's the best that we can worth, work with, um, something like 2.5% of all Chinese mortgages are affected. So it's a huge red line indicator, and that number is probably higher because I don't trust any of the data coming out of there. But I do still think we're talking about a relatively small small thing. So we're talking about a leading indicator. We're not talking about full-blown crisis yet. I just wanted to make that clear. The the Evergrande issue is interesting, and this actually is really tied to what we were just talking about. Um, China relied on stimulus around 2015-2016, which, which was one of the last times you had concerns over real estate prices. It was when uh, 2015 was also when you had a collapse in the Chinese stock market. She was not happy about that. Mm -hmm. And they opened up the credit spigots and they said, let's have stimulus, all these other things. By 2017-2018, the Chinese government said, okay, 
we're stable, we want to rein it back in. And we can't keep doing this, guys. We need to have more product. We need to have a more productive economy. This whole thing where we're, you know, buying and uh, developing properties on credit and everybody like that needs to stop. We need to move up the value chain. We're not going to be able to compete geopolitically if our economy is a glorified Ponzi scheme. So they start doing a lot of different things. They start limiting stimulus. They start regulating the tech companies. Um, people said that's, yes. oh, they want to crush innovation. No, they don't. They just want everybody to follow the same rules. It was the wild, wild west in the China tech sector. So they were just saying, okay, no more. Like there are now rules. We will now enforce these rules. Please listen to us. And if not, we're going to make an example of you like they did with Jack Ma and Alibaba. Cause he was like, no, I don't want to do that. They were like, no, 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 it's different this time, man. You need to follow the rules. So they did that. Right. And Jacob, Jacob, sorry. So just when you say uh, stimulus, I think uh, the word stimulus to me, I have a pretty good sense of what it means in the U.S. There's the fiscal stimulus and then there's the monetary stimulus. So the government can spend money uh, by issuing bonds and then the, the and they can give that money to citizens. It can uh, use that money to backstop uh, loans that commercial makes make to people. It can invest it in itself and, and do infrastructure that uh, stimulates, you know, people have jobs, people are you know that that is the fiscal stimulus and the monetary stimulus. People people know what that is. In China, it's a little bit different, right? But, but sorry, but in the U.S., it's not. With the exception of uh, PPP, where the, the U.S. sort of did backstop commercial credit, the U.S. Uh, government is not a commercial bank, and it's it can't just lower my mortgage rate. It can do things indirectly. But in China, it's, they they can right because they it's a state owned banks, right? So what is when you say stimulus, what does that look like in China? It means and how, how that might be different. It means all of the above. It means everything from, you know, lower the reserve requirement ratio for banks so that they can lend more, cut the interest rates. If they, I mean, it, it's it's really whatever they need to do. They'll push whatever buttons they need to do. So uh, it, uh, it's, I'm not going to it doesn't look like they're just like handing out cash in the streets, but like effectively every single tool they have, whether it's fiscal or monetary, that's in some ways, that's a distinction without a difference in China. If they decide they mm -hmm. want to stimulate the economy, it's like, all right, how, how what are all the different ways that we stimulate the economy? The the one I think that is most common is like lowering the reserve requirement ratio, uh, increasing the capacity of lending, encouraging people to borrow. That's usually the thing that they go to and what I'm talking about when I say there, but they'll use anything they can at their disposal to make it happen. The reason I was talking about 2017 and 2018, though, was because uh, one of the things that happened when they were regulating the tech companies, all that other stuff, they also said to the property developers, hey, we're, we're, we're making a change here. Like we don't want you to keep doing things the way you were doing it before. So you houses and uh, real estate should be built so that people actually live in it. We don't like this system that has come up over time. You've had these sort of last few years of, of easy policy. We're going to try and rein things in a little bit. Evergrande and a bunch of the property developers didn't listen. They, it was just business as usual. So when Evergrande started having trouble, Xi Jinping and the Chinese government said, we don't like these fat cat real estate developers that didn't listen to us. This is what happened. So we're not just going to bail you out. You're going to default. You're going to feel this pain. And hey, all you other property developers, you're on notice. We told you not to do this. Now you're doing it. There are going to be consequences. That was sort of a right. separate issue. It the Where it turns around is it starts getting into actual real estate prices. And then to your point, all of these individuals who purchase these wealth management products or who put their savings into these properties, they're now seeing that the value of real estate or developments that they purpose that, that they purchase that, as you point out, have not even been built yet are starting to decline. And suddenly they're underwater before they've even seen the foundation go up on something that they're supposed to invest in. And that's the point where this gets really scary. If you get to the point where the average Chinese consumer does not trust the system anymore, and they are going to revolt against the system. They're going to go to the, the local banks or go to their local you know, Chinese Communist Party office or government and say, we hate this. Um, we're going to protest and show out in mass. That's a recipe for disaster for the Chinese government. So I think that the Chinese government for a while was happy to let the real estate developers flop around and feel, um, feel the pain. Um, what I don't think what they expected was that it was going to mushroom into this sort of more, uh, this mortgage boycott crisis. I think now that that's on the table, Okay, like they made the point with the property developers, but no more. Like now the job is to stop the stop the bleeding, get the real estate system back on, and then sort of say, all right, going forward, we're not going to do this. And we're going to make sure that you local government party officials and you real estate developers, like we're really going to make sure that you didn't do this. I also would not be surprised if after the party Congress later this year, you saw 
a bunch of purges and arrests of local government officials and of real estate developers yeah. and all these other things to really drive home the point that we're not going to do 2018 again. We're not going to bail out the system and then you're going to go back to business as usual. Um, that's a really difficult needle to thread. There's a lot of things that can happen uh, between those sorts of things. Um, and right now, I mean, the, the most um, concerning thing I've seen out of China in some ways is... Um, you know, you, you've got local bank officials talking to Western papers saying, I don't care what the government says. I'm not lending to these people right now. I don't want to. If the Chinese government's not able to get the banks to lend and prop up the system that way, then we have bigger issues because then the levers and the buttons that they're going to push suddenly aren't going to work. I, I think they'll get through that. But those are some of the things to kind of watch for and what I'm watching for going forward. Okay. Uh, yeah. But don't they, don't, doesn't China own the banks? Is it like the state-owned enterprises? Even someone, a bank manager at a state-owned enterprise, it's saying, I'm not listening to the party that I work for, essentially. The FT had a quote from a banking official that said, I don't care that it's politically correct. I don't want to do this. I don't want to have this on my bank's balance sheet. Now, that's a banker who's willing to talk to the FT. So we're probably talking cream of the crop, somebody in Shanghai, somebody who's not in a third-tier city and who's willing to talk to an FT reporter. Like... That doesn't mean there's a systemic problem. Again, it's one of those little breadcrumbs where it's like, huh, like that shouldn't be there. I kind of need to figure out what's going on with that particular story. But this is the other part of this. There's an old, um, I can't remember if it's the Tang or Shang dynasty. There, there's an old Chinese proverb that I always use. Um, it's the hills are high and the emperor is far away. The idea being that China's huge. It's a billion people. It doesn't matter if they own the banks. Like you have to have a bureaucracy of tens of millions of people who do what the central government says. And if they don't, it doesn't matter if you technically own the bank, you're reliant on the bureaucracy. One of the reasons, one of the macro reasons I've been bullish on China is because when you look at the, the large swath of Chinese history, these dynasties usually last for hundreds of years. And you get these cycles where there's um, a centralization of political control and a strong government is able to control the entire country or the entire empire. And then when things start to break apart, it's because people stop listening and because warlords spring up and go to Taiwan and start having their own personal fiefdoms. Like that's when things get bad from a Chinese point of view. And everything that we've seen since, especially since Xi Jinping came to power was stronger China centralized authority they're calling all the shots anybody who goes against she is never seen again um so if and we're also the chinese communist party's only been around for what 75 years or so most chinese dynasties last hundreds of years before they get to the late stage sclerotic part where people stop listening to them so if we're if if that right. limited breadcrumb in an ft report is a sign that the bureaucracy is not listening to beijing like, well, buckle your seatbelts. Maybe we have something much bigger here. Something is rotten in the Chinese bureaucracy itself, and that poses significant problems to the Chinese Communist Party. I don't think we're there yet. I think that was probably a limited, isolated case. And like I said, I think they have the tools at their disposal to get out of this real estate crisis that they've backed themselves into. But that's all the stuff that's at work. And that's why it's really important to have a flexible mind when we're looking at this stuff. Like you can't just sort of have your one take on China and that's going to be it. We have to be watching all of these things and then seeing how they're developed and have that change our minds if we see things that don't align with our original, um, our original model or point of view. Right. I, I just want to point out that, yeah, there definitely were a lot of excesses with Evergrande. Uh, not only did they you know, make all this money by uh, lending money <laughs> for properties that were not built, but you know, they, they used that money. They bought an electric vehicle company. <laughs> they bought a roller coaster theme park uh, that in trans it tra translates to English. It was called Evergrande Fairyland, <laughs> which is actually the, my cover photo, on, cover photo on Twitter. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, there were definitely a lot of excesses. Um, Jacob, my question for you is, do you, th you said China, when China does stimulus, it, it goes big. Do you think it will be enough? Because let's say you and I, knowing what we know now about the great financial crisis, we wind back the clock to September 1st, 2008, right before the Lehman blow up, right before this epic cascade. You know, do you think that however big we went, you know, let's say I'm chairman of the Fed, you're uh, uh, head of the treasury. However big you go, there's going to be a lot of pain there. There's going to be a lot of assets, a lot of markdowns, a lot of drawdowns that it just can't be avoided because the, the, the asset is just not worth what it currently says it's worth, right? Well, first of all, if I'm head of the treasury, we're in trouble. Uh, you should sell your assets now and, and, and probably... And if I'm head of the Fed, yeah, we're, we're screwed. I would, go, I would go all cash until I was, I was uh, <laughs> taken out to pasture. Um, I also just want to point out that... Um, 
and this is especially true in Western media, not you, of course, but I just if you look at the mainstream Western press, um, they make China out to be um, sort of unique in this point of view, but they're not. And I mean that in two ways, like you were talking about Evergrande. I mean, I've, I've lost track of what AMC yes. is buying and what they're doing. And that's yeah. all happening within um, our system. They bought a gold company, a gold miner company. Yeah, you know, and we're, this is all part of the same global system. So the world has depended on China to consume all of this steel and all of this iron and all of these things to build all of this real estate. It's not just like this happens in China and oh, our system is so much better. Like the global financial system, economic system does not work without the Chinese. If they're having problems, everybody's going to have problems. It's why in September 2008, the first call from the Secretary of the Treasury and all the guys back then was to the People's Bank of China, which hey guys, can we coordinate our policy response here because this is really bad and like we're all going to be affected by this. It is a measure of how much has changed since 2008 that that was the first call that the U.S. had at the height of the crisis, whereas now you know, Nancy Pelosi is going to Taiwan and Biden and Xi are having angry conversations. Nobody's coordinating anything, right? So that's sort of a bad indicator for me. Um, Look, yes, I, th I think that they can handle this problem. I think that there is enough in their toolkit to metabolize the scope of the problem that we're dealing with. Eventually, it's going to have to be dealt with. And um, it, it's actually, for me, bad from a long-term perspective that China's had to resort to the stimulus um, lever again because they really were, and she really was, trying to um, make things more efficient. He didn't want to do this. China didn't want to go to the fiscal stimulus. They, they want to try and reorganize their system so that they have a more productive economy. They can sweep this under the rug, but eventually the problem will get big enough to where they might not be able to sweep it under the rug. Uh, but right now, here today, um, I mean, no, I, I think we're still early. I think they still have the political will. I think they still have the financial resources. I think China is still domestically contained enough to where... Um, they don't have to worry about that much about foreign creditors compared to some of these other countries. Um, I don't see it, but it's on the table. It's an option. And at some point, China will have to figure this out. Um, and that's, I think, again, one of the reasons that we've seen Xi emerge as a dictator. I think he knows that there is Trouble's the wrong word. I think she knows that China's looking at less economic growth and that that is going to be disruptive for China's society. And that's one of the reasons he needs control because he needs to be able to make difficult decisions and not worry that he's about to get a peasant uprising that's going to overthrow him, which is what usually happens to Chinese governments when they lose uh, when they lose a handle. So yes, but I'm, I'm much less certain about that than I was even a couple months ago based on some of these warning signals that have been flashing. And you know, Jacob, not relying on the Austrian school at all, but sort of in mainstream economics, there is a view that if there's too much stimulus, two, one of two things will happen, or both things will happen. There's going to be inflation in the country, or that country's fiat currency will depreciate relative to other fiat currencies. Now, the U.S. is kind of an exception because ever, there's a huge demand for dollars because it's denominated in trade. Everyone wants to hold FX reserves, um, yada, yada, yada. But in China... Is there a risk that this um, uh, you know, huge stimulus, huge printing of money will cause either domestic inflation or depreciation of the yuan? Or are they protected because they have dollar reserves? But also, uh, you know, Harold Malmgren was recently telling me that their, their dollar reserves are going down and they, they don't have as many dollars as, as, I, as I thought. Uh, I, love, I love Harold, first of all, and I listen to him whenever he talks, but I've always been a little more optimistic about China than he was. But this is also a reason why China's not going to go after Taiwan, getting back to kind of where we started the conversation. This is not Russia. They are not willing to hole up in their own system and tell the people that they have to tighten their belts. The Chinese system is built on ensuring prosperity going forward. So they can't afford to be locked out from the global dollar market. They can't afford to have the stock market and all these um, asset prices collapse in the same way that Russia was kind of able to do so. So all of those are actually reasons I think that there's not going to be this big conflict and that it's going to sort of like the, the semiconductor dependence is probably going to deter things going forward. Um, I don't have a good answer to your question about um, China itself in terms of is the, is the yuan going to depreciate because of this? Is this going to cause inflation in China? I think one of the difficult things for China right now with this real estate crisis, and it's the reason it's so unnerving to them, is they love five-year plans and 10-year plans and making sure that they are on top of everything. Um, and they're not thinking about inflation. They're not thinking about the secondary effects of what this stimulus is going to cause because this problem is here now and it's serious enough to where if they don't get it right, 
there's not going to be a second order problem to fix. Um, so I, I think that the Chinese government is not thinking in terms of, okay, well, what is the stimulus going to do down the road? They're on, in the unfortunate situation of we have a crisis now, we have to fix the crisis now. And if we if it comes to we have to deal with inflation and the depreciation of the yuan relative to other currencies, okay, we'll figure that out then and we have our entire toolkit then. Um, and, you know, it's it's still the second largest economy in the world, I guess third, um, well, is it, is it bigger than the European Union? I can't uh, with all the uh, anyway, it's one of the top three economies in the entire world. Um, and the global system is like dependent on on China to a certain degree. So um, I, I think that they will they will get to that when they get to that. But I, I, I would I don't see any kind of doomsday scenario to where they're going to be unequal to the challenge. I think they would love to be dealing with those challenges rather than the real estate challenge they're facing right now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, Jacob, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Forward Guidance. Would love to have you back. Um, people should follow your work at Cognitive Investments, and they can follow your Twitter at uh, Jacob Schapp. Jacob, thanks so much. Thanks, Jack. Good to see you. Talk to you soon. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.